So, Lord Jesus, you are worthy. You have borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and entered into the tomb that has been our soul, and you are rising from the dead and bringing us with you. So, Lord, with every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is within them, we, we say you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We worship you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm uh, really glad to see you here this morning and uh, hope you, you need to snuggle to stay warm during the message, but we're really grateful to have uh, Reverend Dr. Robin Perry with us today. Back in 2006, when I was up at Lookout, um, I was just so excited about all the things that I was seeing in Scripture and kind of also wondering, can I really say these things? And one of the books that I read at the time was this great book, The Evangelical Universalist by Gregory MacDonald, which is a pseudonym for, for Robin. And uh, then, uh, you know, we had a conference here six years ago, and Robin came out and was one of the speakers. And then he preached here again four years ago. He's in town for several conferences and staying at my house a couple of days and said, hey, could I talk you into preaching? He said, yes. So uh, we're really glad that, uh, that Robin's uh, here. He's got a, um, he, Robin's a priest now, technically, in the Anglican Church. Um, he's also works with a as editor, publishing company, so that's why he's out here. I wanted to show you a few of the, this is part of my Robin Perry collection. This is the Evangelical uh, Universalist, which is really a fascinating book. Uh, Four Views on Hell that came out a few years later. And then this is really cool with Ilaria Romelli. They did a a two-book series called The Larger Hope, kind of the history of ultimate reconciliation in the church. And the second book, uh, it's dedicated to Brad Jerzyk and me. Were you desperate to find people to dedicate books to or something? Yeah, yeah I knew you were. So anyway, um, then this is a great one. Also be well edited by Robin with different essays by different theologians on uh, different, uh, different people's theologians' positions on this topic. Um, let's see. I wanted to mention, Robin, because Robin's an Anglican priest, we're going to have Anglican communion this morning. So when we get to that part of the service, there will be uh, prayers and responses up on the screen. Robin is the pastor, and you all are all, okay? You're all, so you need to read your part. And uh, Robin asked that we start with a reading of the text. And so Brett and Jolene are going to read that in a minute here. You can come up here now, Brett and Jolene. Um, I'll hand this to you in just a minute, but let's, let's, pray, for, let's pray for Robin uh, here at the start, all right? So yeah, come, do you, want, you guys want to stand up here and you can hand the mic back and forth? So yeah, come on up here, all right. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for this morning. We do pray for the boiler, that it would be healed and that uh, um, you would somehow miraculously metabolize all the fat in our bodies, turn it into heat energy right now, we pray. Um, but Lord, uh, most of all, we pray that our hearts would be open to what you have to say to us this morning through Robin. And we pray for Robin as he speaks, that you would speak to Robin. Um, uh, we thank you for him, and we offer this time to you, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Peter? Oh, oh yeah, I need to, I forgot that. Thank you, Brett. Um, we have these, we have these for, uh, 
you to follow along uh, copies of Psalm 104. So if you don't have one, while they start reading, I'm going to run around and hand you one, okay? So if you don't have one, hold up your hand and I'll, I'll bring it to you. Robin doesn't have one. Okay, all right, so there you go. Psalm 104. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. O Jehovah, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays down the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They rose up the mountain, they sank down the valleys to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary so that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches from your lofty abode. You water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees, O Jehovah, are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Jehovah, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships, and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of Jehovah endure forever. May Jehovah rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to Jehovah as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. 
May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in Yahweh, in Jehovah. Sorry, Robin. <laughs> Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless Jehovah, O my soul. Praise Jehovah. I hope you can hear me. Is it coming through all right? Um, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for reading that so well. It was terrific. Um, the Lord is here and his spirit is with us. So let's open our hearts to him and be receptive to his word. Just checking the time. Okay. So... If we've got a slide, can we have the first slide? I've been thinking, you know, the world has changed in innumerable ways over the past few hundred years. And one of the unintended consequences of those changes is that we, and the next slide, have become more alienated uh, from the natural world than any generation before us in history. And that sort of alienation has been, has been building up. So let me sort of explain to you some of the kinds of things I have in mind. And this is not intended to sort of lay blame on anyone or say we need to go back and live in mud huts or anything like that. It's just simply to point out an unintended consequence of a lot of the changes that have happened. Um, back in the day, when I look up at the sky at night, um, I see the moon and I see stars, but I couldn't really tell you which stars are which or when the moon does its thing or where it appears or when different stars are at different parts of the sky, but our ancestors would have known the sky intimately because this is how they worked out the time, what time of year it was, uh, when different festivals were coming up, when you plant crops and sow seeds and things. It's all governed by the movement of the stars. This is how calendars worked. And of course, they didn't have watches, so they could know what time of day it is by noting where the sun was in the sky at different times of year and they had to know all this stuff intimately to know when abouts in the year they were, what season it was and what time it was. I don't know any of that. I have got a watch right here. It's completely mechanical and disconnected from uh, what's going on in the world and I couldn't tell you what was going on in the sky. Not a clue. I have a calendar for that. But of course, back then, certainly in days gone by, people used to regulate their sleep patterns um, according to the seasons of the year. People in the darker winters, people would sleep in longer. And in the summers, they would rise early and go to work in the fields. It was an agricultural society. It made a lot of sense to work like that. And your body moved with the rhythms of the night and the day. And that was actually quite good for our uh, physical and mental health. We're not like that. We wake up, I wake up at the same time every day, whatever time of year it is. Um, and I go to work at the same time, whatever time of year it is, and so on. I have that, this, and it doesn't ever get dark, really, where I live. I mean, I never, I never see a dark sky. There's always some ambient street light around. In the olden days, you'd have, you know, didn't have electric lights, and it got really dark. Even in dark places where I live, I mean, England's a lot smaller than America. So um, you probably do get some dark. But even when it gets dark, there's always some ambient light on the horizon. Um, 
Also, people's lives moved. It was an agricultural society. They move in time with the seasons of the year, the time when you plant, the time when you tend the crops. Different crops planted at different times, reaped different life cycles of beasts and how you look after them and so on. My job is the same every single day of the year, more or less. You could take any one of my working days and switch it for another one and you wouldn't know the difference. Um, and it's not remotely connected to the rhythms of the natural world as it, as it would be if I was a farmer, um, but most of us aren't farmers anymore. People used to hunt and grow their own food, and of course some people still do, but most of us don't, particularly if you're an urbanite like, like I am. And so they knew what they were eating. They knew where it had come from and the stories behind it. Many of us, we just go to the food store, right? That's what I do. I don't, know what I don't know what's in season or what's not in season because I can get anything I want all year round. I can buy an orange any time of the year. I, I guess the closest I get to an orange being in season is when it doesn't taste like a tasteless sack of water, but it, <laughs> it actually tastes a bit like an orange. Um, that's when I get the clue that it's in season. But uh, you can buy anything any time of the year. And I've got no idea where my food comes from or the story behind or even where it's come from. I don't know about the people who've produced it and maybe some of the ethical issues involved with that. Uh, the working conditions of the people who produced it or what pay they got for it. I don't know what agri industrial agricultural practices may have been used in the production of this food I'm eating and whether chemicals that might be ultimately poisoning the soil and rivers have been used. I don't know because I just go in a shop and buy my stuff. I don't know where the meat I'm buying has come from or how the animals have been treated that have been, uh, that, that have been turned into this meat. Um, all of this stuff I, I sh is shielded from me and I am alienated from it. And I don't even feel bad about that because I don't know about it. There's nothing to tell me that I should. Many of us, and if you're like me, well, I'm not very good at leaves, my wife keeps telling me. You know, you don't even know your oak from your birches. Or you don't know your starlings from your sparrows and your swifts and your swallows and all of that kind of stuff. I am disconnected in my thinking and in my living from the created world on which I depend. And this has consequences for my mental health, my wife will tell me. <laughs> um, and it's also bad for me if I'm trying to learn how to live in tune with the world in which I live, because I don't know how to do it anymore, because I'm not sensitive or attuned to it. And so we come to Psalm 104, which is the next slide. Oh, it's there, very, very good. We need to see creation because the psalmist sees creation. Look at the range of features that um, he picks out. He identifies this range of big categories and then he zooms in on a few specific uh, examples. So he looks at trees and then he just picks out a couple of cedars, firs, things like that. And these examples are intended to just crack open a little door for us into this wide world of wonder. So he picks up various habitats. You can see he picks, look at the sky, he says, which is where you find the clouds and the rain and the winds and the lightning and the moon and the, the sun. Look at the sea, look at the land, which is where you find mountains and rocks and valleys and fields and forests and springs and rivers. These are all things mentioned in the psalm. That's why I mentioned them. Um, so we've got the sky, the sea and the land. These are different habitats. And then he looks at things that inhabit these habitats. We've got plants, and he talks, talks about some wild plants, grass, trees, and he picks out cedars and firs as examples. Cultivated plants, 
we find grapes and grain and olives mentioned and what they turn into as wine and bread and uh, grapes, grain, olives, oil um, in the psalm. These are the three staple crops in, in ancient Israel. And then we have animals. Um, we have land animals and wild animals, wild goats, rock badgers, that's conies, uh, wild donkeys, lions, birds, birds, including storks. We have um, beasts of the field, which are domestic animals. We have humans, which are clever animals. And then we have sea beasties, which are the innumerable creatures, large ones, small ones, including Leviathan, the great big dragon uh, who lives in the sea, we'll come back to him, and ships, which aren't really creatures, but, you know, people live at sea too. Not only, though, do we have habitats and inhabitants, we also have a sense of time and seasons here. This is, as I've mentioned already, an agricultural society, and it's attuned to the rhythms of night and day and seasons and when to sow and when to reap and when to rest the land. So, we, and he mentions seasons, and he mentions day and night, and he mentions the circle of life, uh, life cycles of animals being born and feeding and dying and new ones being born and so on. The circle of life. We all saw The Lion King. We know what I'm talking about. I won't sing it. Um, and then there's also... Uh, Different species having different times and places in which they thrive. Uh, so we've got mountains. They're very good for wild goats, says the psalmist, and conies. And the day is when humans seek food, and the night is when certain predators do. And he's not complaining about that. Uh, he's not complaining about the lions or warning people about the lions. And lions, yes, they can hurt people. But what he is saying is he's just celebrating the diversity and the wisdom of God in all of these patterns and so on that's going on in the world around him, that he sees around him, and the circle of life which I've mentioned. Now, there's also a bit of awareness, did I say this? I did, of the interdependence of creatures. We have rain. Why does the rain come? The rain's for the plants. But the rain also gives rivers for animals and humans to drink. And the plants, well, they contribute to, um, but they make habitats for birds, and the birds make their nests, and they sing in the trees, and that's it's lovely. You just get this sense, this guy pays attention to what's going on around him. The plants are also food for animals, including humans, and there's various crops mentioned, and some animals are food for other animals. That's verse 21, which talks about predation, um, and humans in turn cultivate crops and help the plants, which the plants help the humans. And so there's some sense of this interdependence. But also, and interestingly, it's not a fairy tale world. It sounds very idyllic, but it's not a fairy tale world he's talking about here. Because he mentions, as I've said already, predation, so there's animals eating each other. He talks about animal suffering and death in verse 29. He talks about earthquakes and volcanoes in verse 32. And all of this is symbolized using the ancient Near Eastern mythic symbols of water and darkness and the chaos dragon Leviathan. Because in the ancient Near East, um, creation stories usually begin with lots of water and dark. Genesis does too. 
And water and dark were symbols of chaos. And they are inhospitable to life. The way God uh, enables life to thrive in creation in Genesis 1 is he puts the water in their place. He creates space, waters above, waters below. He pulls the waters back so that there's space for the land and so on. And so what God does, and this is what's going on in the psalm too, if you look at that section near the beginning, God's putting the waters in their place because the waters symbolize chaos and God is creating space for life to thrive in this world. Darkness too, God creates light uh, in Genesis. Um, and Leviathan is usually a monster. That's, Leviathan is a monster we find in Canaanite mythology and... Um, one of the, if you're really interested in this stuff, I wrote a book on the biblical cosmos which talks about the symbolism of biblical cosmography and cosmology and stuff, the way they saw the world. And it's got a lovely picture of Leviathan on the front looking really cute. Um, Leviathan is this, sea mon this, this sort of mythic chaos monster that is slain uh, in creation. But here, here he's, a, he's just a tame little beast uh, frolicking in the sea having fun. Anyway, what God does is he creates this space in which life can thrive and he turns these forces, these powerful forces which are represented by water and darkness into forces of life-giving goodness. Uh, so in Psalm 104, look at what God does with this water. He uses it to bring life to plants and animals and through rivers and through rain and the sea itself is teeming with life. You see the same thing in Genesis. The sea is full of life, and the waters that water the land, they bring life. Even Leviathan, as I say, isn't some fearsome beast that has to be defeated, but is part of God's creation and is just having a laugh in the sea. Similarly in the book of Job, but dangerous. So in the book of Job, God's saying, look at Leviathan, flipping powerful and dangerous, but hey man, it's just my pet. You know, we, we have fun together. It's like God's rock viola, as it were. Um, but this, this imagery reminds us that nature contains powerful forces that can be um, dangerous to us, but in their place they have a life-giving role to play. This reminded me about volcanoes, because of course we think volcanoes, oh, that's dangerous. They kind of kill you uh, if you fall in the lava or whatever. Yeah, they do. Um, but volcanoes were essential to the arising of life on Earth. I mean, without volcanoes, we wouldn't have had all... The volcanoes brought all the water of the oceans and stuff from the, under the crust and the mantle out. They were f instrumental and fundamental for the creation of the atmosphere and the formation of land. So without volcanoes, we wouldn't be here. They are part of God's creation and part of the way through which God creates the world. And this is a good thing in its place. They also kill you, so be careful. Um, so next slide. So we need to see creation, we need to pay attention to it. So much of our thinking and our theology is human-centric, and we forget sometimes that we're part of a wider community of creation. It is not all about us. That was part of God's message to Job in the book of Job, if you remember Eventually, God speaks to him, and uh, there's these marvelous divine speeches, and part of them, God brings all these wild animals to Job, and he goes, look at that animal. That animal has absolutely nothing to contribute to human society. And this animal, he goes through a whole bunch of them, this animal couldn't care less about you lot, you humans, he just carries on doing his own thing, and he's cool. 
says God. This is my paraphrase, I didn't actually say that. But God goes through all of these things and part of what Job is learning is, you know what, I don't know anything about these animals, they're just kind of off my radar. And, and they've, got, they've got nothing to contribute to me as such. But that's great because they're part of God's creation and God's creation isn't all about me. It doesn't exist, it's not all there for my sake. And it's good for us to know that. We need to know that. The psalmist gets that, and the psalmist here in Psalm 104 is full of wonder at a world in which humans have a really important place, but a world that isn't all about us. And seeing the world, I mean really seeing the world, takes time. And for us particularly, it takes intentionality. It won't just happen. We have to make, we have to practice and learn how to see the world and pay attention to it. And it's harder for us than ever because, as I said at the beginning, we can, we're kind of insulated from it, most of us urbanites. We don't actually have to get our hands dirty growing our food and all that. So we don't have to pay attention. So we have to go out of our way to reconnect. And we need to do that if we're going to seek to live in harmony with God's world and to learn how to wonder at it. So that's the first point. We need to see creation. But I'm going to make this easy. I have a second point, which is we need to see creation. <sighs> see what I did there? I want to make it easy. In case you think I've got loads of points, how will I ever remember it all? They're all, they're all just one point, really. <sighs> We need to see creation because the psalmist doesn't just see habitats and plants and animals and stuff. The psalmist sees creatures. And being a creature is the most fundamental aspect of our identity. We are created, which means we are dependent upon God just to be. And not just to be, but also to be the kinds of things that we are. The world cannot be adequately understood if it's not understood as creation. That is to say, if it's not understood in its relationship to God, because its relationship to God and the relationship of everything within the world to God is part of the very identity of those things. And this has implications. What it means is that there is no confusion in the psalmist's mind between God and creation. The creator-creature distinction uh, is the most basic of all distinctions. And that means that we're not pantheists, which isn't people who believe that pans are God. Um, pantheists believe that everything is God. We don't think everything is God. There is a distinction between God and creation. And what that means is we love the world, we revere the world, but we do not worship the world. This idea of being a creature is then is at the very core of our identity, our existence, our very being depends upon God. God causes us to exist. And not only in our origins, in our ongoing existence. Here's how I like to think about it. Um, it's not like God has created the world like some watch and he wound it up and then set it going and goes off to sleep or something somewhere else and leaves the world to run itself. God is like a singer and creation is the song that God sings. 
we exist at any moment that we exist because God is singing us. If God ever stopped singing us, we would be nothing. We would cease to be. So our very ongoing existence depends upon God as he sings us. God, by contrast, depends upon nothing. God simply is. And that's what marks a distinction between the creator and the creation. The next slide. We need to see creation. So, as a work of God, so this is another point which comes out in verse 24. Um, creation is made through and in God's divine wisdom. God, this will not surprise you to learn, is inherently wise. Everything then that God does is marked and characterized by wisdom. All of God's deeds are wise, and that includes the creation itself and everything that God does within creation. And so creation manifests God's wisdom. And we can glimpse, though only glimpse, God's wisdom in all the things we see around us. To see the world as creation is to see God's wisdom in it and to seek to, living, to live in accordance with her order. I say her, I'm talking about wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, God's wisdom is, is she. Uh, so it's, it's her that we discern in the world, the wisdom of God. And she is everywhere. Not as one more item among things, like you've got chairs and you've got Peter and you've got carpets and you've got peas and you've got trees. Oh, and you've got wisdom as like another thing in the world. No, that's not what wisdom is like. Wisdom is everywhere and in everything, but it's not another thing that you can pick out and go, oh, look, there's wisdom stuck on the bottom of my shoe or something like that. That's not what we mean when we talk about that. So, she exists in all things and in the complex interrelationships between things. And in this psalm, we see then God at work in the first part, in the origins of the world, and then in the subsequent parts of the psalm, in the ongoing life of the world, not distant, like in deism, not starting the world off and then bogging off, as it were, but actually seeing God present in and through the everyday processes of the natural world. Look at all the things that the psalmist points out as being the way that God is working in the world. Weather, <laughs> what's going on with the weather? Water provision through springs and rivers and rain, seasons, movements of celestial objects, the sun and the moon and the stars, plant growth, provision of food for animals, including providing food for lions, which I'm sure the lambs are not so happy about. God, couldn't you have come up with a better way? Um, habitats, cycles of life and death and so on. All of these things are where you see God's wisdom and where you see the presence of God in the world. Now, there's something very important for us to learn here because it's natural mundane things where we are finding God here, not in the gaps, not in the things that science can't explain and so on. This is the stuff that science does explain. But that's not a problem. There's no sort of conflict here between science and God. Science is simply describing the patterns of God's creation and God's work in the world. 
And there's a very important lesson for us, particularly as charismatics. If we're only looking for God in the extraordinary or the inexplicable or the spectacular or unusual, we are missing a key part of the Christian life, which is namely to learn how to see the presence of God in the ordinary, the everyday, the mundane, the stuff that we think is a bit boring and normal. That's where we find God. And, that, and learning to see God in the everyday is an important thing that our psalmist can help us to learn. And that's what it means, or part of what it means, to see creation, which is the next slide, because let's explore that a little, little bit more. God is manifest in creation. creation. Theologians like to talk about divine imminence and divine transcendence. Transcendence is the otherness of God, the distinction between God and creation, and I've already said something about that. But let's think about imminence. Imminence is the presence of God in everything, the intimacy of God to everything. God is intimate to creation, fully present in everything. And I mean fully present, because you can't chop God up into bits and go, there's a bit of God in the chair, and there's a bit of God in the, uh, the trees, and there's a bit of... No, <laughs> and God isn't spread out like a blanket. So there's you know, a bit of him over there, the northwest corner of God's over there. And no, all of God is everywhere. God is fully present wherever God is present. And so God is fully present in everything. Every creature gets its being from... So this makes creatures amazing. Right? Pick a tree, any tree, put it back in the pack. No, don't do that. But think of a tree, or think of a person, or think of a rabbit, or think of anything you like. Um, every single thing that is created gets its being from God. So it can't be fully explained apart from its relationship to God. And a creature's meaning then opens out into the infinity and inexplicability of God. So mystery is at the heart of creation because God is at the heart of creation and mystery is at the heart of God. So you will never, ever be able to understand everything to fully explain anything, even the simplest amoeba, because the amoeba opens out into the infinity of God and you will never understand that. So our world is not divine, but it is sacred. You are standing or sitting on holy ground. It is true that God manifests his presence in certain times, in certain ways, in certain places, and that's wonderful. But even when God is not manifesting his presence, God's presence is a reality. Psalm 139 makes that clear. You know, wherever I go, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the farthest ends of the earth, you're there. If I go down, if I go everywhere I go, you're there. God's presence is everywhere. Creation then is holy. Because God created creation to be a temple, a house, a dwelling place where God is present. And I think that this sacred presence in the world is what many pagan uh, religions have, have felt. This sense of holiness and sacredness to the world and have simply um, misunderstood it to think that the world itself is divine. But actually it is a real sensing of the presence of the Holy One in creation that is being responded to here. And it is helpful to acknowledge that. And so to take an example of this divine manifestation, look at the way in the first four verses, God's presence is, is revealed in the sky. 
So the psalmist will take created things, light, clouds, winds, lightning, and say God reveals himself through these things. Just take the first one, light. God is light. In God's self, God is divine light. Created light is like an analogy of that, a dim reflection of God's light. But nevertheless, created light can be a means through which God's divine light is revealed to us. When I woke up this morning, I looked out the window and it was the most beautiful sunrise. The colors and things, it was just astonishing. And um, it brought this, this text to mind that God wraps himself in light and in light and through light, it can become sacramental. Something that reveals to a sacrament is a material thing through which the spiritual reality is communicated. It can reveal these things. So there's this wonderful quote from uh, Macrina Vedica. By the way, before I read it, a theophany is a manifestation of God. Okay, that's what it is. So this, she says, you live in a world of theophanies. Holiness comes wrapped in the ordinary. There are burning bushes all around you and every tree is full of angels. Sometimes we crave the new thing all the time. We want to have a new vista, something new to see or look at. We want this to, so we get bored, we get bored, we need to see this. We don't need that. What we need is new eyes to see with. Every single leaf you look at, opens up onto the glory of God if we learn to see it afresh. I often think this is how I'd occupy myself if I was ever put in prison. <laughs> Having to find a leaf or something to look at. <laughs> Finally, third point, we need <laughs> to see creation. All that I've said is simply a matter of living consciously as creatures in creation. So it's not some kind of trendy environmentalist fad. We should be living like this irrespective of whether there's an environmental crisis or not. We just need to find ways of connecting with God's creation so that we can live as creatures more appropriately. However, because of the stuff I said at the beginning, because our modern lifestyles have alienated us, not intentionally, but they have to various and significant degrees from creation so that we're not really, from the rest of creation, not so aware of it. We can be blinded to some of the catastrophic effects that we are having on the environment around us. It's hard for us to see in our day-to-day -day lives how the lifestyles we live are impacting the world around us. And even when we learn about it, uh, it's easy to withdraw and shield ourselves from that so that we feel a bit less stressed. And that allows us, this blindness allows us to happily keep soaring off the branch that we're sitting on, humming happily to ourselves as we do so, without realizing just how destructive and self-destructive this behavior is. And we can't keep living this way. Well, the issues in this, these environmental issues are complicated and I don't want to get into them here. I just want to make this a very simple point, and it's this. The urgency of our current environmental crises makes discerning and living in tune with God's wisdom in creation 
imperative. To ignore God's wisdom is to walk a road that leads to destruction. Whereas, as Proverbs teaches us, heeding her instruction is a path that leads to life. And all of this begins with learning to see the natural world again and learning to see it as God's creation. And if we can start to do that, then we can start to learn again how to walk gently on the earth. Amen. So, we're going to move into a uh, time of the Eucharist, is that right, Peter? Okay. So the words uh, will appear on the screen, just so you know uh, how, it, how it will work. So, yes, I am an Anglican, so we have to do this a little bit weird. And Peter very graciously has uh, allowed us to do it a bit weird. So go with the flow. It might not be what you're used to. Um, and I'm only doing a little part of the Anglican thing here. Um, but go with the flow, and, and hopefully, you know, God will use it. The words, if you inhabit the words, uh, as a means of blessing. So just, so just be open to what the Spirit might, might do in your hearts through this. So basically, I'll do the bits that aren't in bold, and if it's in bold, you do it. You say the words. Um, hope that makes sense. It should be fairly straightforward. So let's just pause for a moment of silence in the presence of God. And realize that in these very physical, material, created elements, bread and wine, by the Holy Spirit, they can become a means of revelation and communion with God. The Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. All honor and glory be yours, always and everywhere, mighty creator, ever-living God. Through your holy wisdom you have made and sustain all things, in heaven and on earth, and all that you have brought into being radiates your beauty. In your great love, this same holy wisdom, eternally one God with you, came and lived among us, born as a human, Jesus our Savior. In him our Creator shared in the suffering and death of creation in order to bring it to share in the divine life. And so we join with all your creatures, those in the skies, on land, on the, in the sea, and with all the company of heaven forever praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. We praise and bless you, loving Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we obey his command, send your Holy Spirit, 
that broken bread and wine outpoured may be for us the body and blood of your dear Son. On the night before he died, he had supper with his friends, and taking the bread, he praised you. He gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Lord, we believe. When the supper was ended, he took the wine, and he praised you and gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Amen. Amen. Lord, we believe. So, Father, we remember all that Jesus did, and him we plead with confidence, his sacrifice made once for all upon the cross. Bringing before you the bread of life and cup of salvation, we proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes in glory. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Lord of all life, help us to work together for that day when your kingdom comes and justice and mercy will be seen in all the earth. Look with favor on your people. Gather us in your loving arms and bring us with all the saints to feast at your table in heaven. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours, O loving Father, forever and ever. Amen. As our Savior taught us, so we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. Draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for you, and his blood, which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith, with thanksgiving. Amen. So listen up, all you creatures of our God and King. Keep singing. And that's easy to do when you consider that He's singing you. You are a way that God sings. So believe the gospel and sing His praises in Jesus' name. Amen.